people of Israel to sing as they journey up to Jerusalem, as they go up to meet with God and with his people. And en route, they sing these songs, they remember what the Lord has done, they they sing this truth to themselves. This kind of congregational commute gets very loud as they sing these truths together. And it's kind of like our journey in life as we head towards God, it's like this journey. So these songs are originally for Israel, but they're for us as we journey towards God. And we've seen in the last three sermons in the Psalms of Ascent that there's been some kind of progression. We started pretty low in Psalm 120, and then it kind of worked up and got better. And by 122, we were on a bit of a high. Things had got really good. But tonight, we're back in hardship. Uh, The Psalms of Ascent are not two songs written in trial, and then tra-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la, all the way back to Jerusalem. That's not how they go. Tonight, we flick back to trial. And that doesn't take away from the joy of Psalm 122. It doesn't mean that that wasn't true. It doesn't mean that we learned no lessons from Psalm 120. It doesn't mean that we learned no lessons from Psalm 121. What it means is that the road is hard, the road is long, and there are many trials. There's more than one hurdle on this road up to God. And so we shouldn't be discouraged that the Psalms of Ascent are back in sadness and back in trial. I think actually we should be comforted because these songs match the journey, don't they? This is what our lives are like. We don't just work through one hardship and then it's plain sailing. There's many to work through. And so it should be a comfort to us as we journey up to God that he gives us songs like this to sing. Uh, He calls us to sing them to him and that the song fits the journey so perfectly. Uh, Very quickly before we read, I just want to say that not everybody is going to be in or have been in the circumstance of tonight's psalm. Uh, Not everybody here tonight will have experienced or will be currently experiencing uh, the trial that we're going to look at. So for some of us, this is just going to be training. We're going to be looking at uh, the truth we need to apply for a moment we're not yet at. But as we train, I want us to be really sensitive to the fact that we're training next to people who are in the trenches of this. For some people, this will be a word in season. They'll have experienced this, and it is difficult. And so even as we're training, we're training next to people in the trenches, and we need to be sensitive to that. And the privilege of this psalm is that trainees and trenches next to each other get to sing on behalf of one another. So even if you're just experiencing this passage as a trainee, you're not there yet, and maybe this situation will never hit you full in the face recognize the people next to you might be in the trenches and it's your joy and your privilege to sing and pray this psalm with them and sometimes for them when they come but before we read psalm 123 let me pray for us let's pray heavenly father we thank you so much for this book Uh, we thank you especially for the psalms of ascent which we're enjoying and being taught from at the moment as a church and our prayer tonight is that you would speak to us Give us eyes to see wonderful things in your words. And Father, I want to pray particularly for those who will relate very closely to this psalm, that you would speak words of comfort to them tonight through your word, by your spirit, for their good, but for your glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read together. Psalm 123, page 623. I lift up my eyes to you. To you whose throne is in heaven, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, 
so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud. Much contempt from the arrogant. So we'll start tonight in the circumstance of this psalm and then we'll move towards where it wants us to move towards. You'll notice that it's a different suffering to the psalms we've looked at, right? We've moved away from suffering at the lips of liars in Psalm 120, from a a search for security in Psalm 121. Now the current circumstance is the psalmist has endured much contempt and much ridicule and all at the hands of the proud and the arrogant, those who have Uh, Those who are at their ease, who run their own lives and have much, are now pouring out contempt and ridicule upon the psalmist. If you're new to ridicule and contempt as words and as experience, contempt is this idea of being treated as worthless, being considered and treated as beneath consideration. It is being scorned, being treated with disdain, being denigrated, and it is horrible. You can see from the psalm, it's powerfully effective on people. This is a horrible thing. Uh, Again, if you're new to ridicule, it's way beyond playful banter. It's mockery. It's verbal dismissal. It's being made laughable, scoffed at, sneered at. Literally, to ridicule is to make someone ridiculous. And the psalmist in Psalm 123 can take no more. Do you see that in verses 3 and 4, this sense of having had enough? Look at how much he uses the word much. We have endured much contempt, much ridicule, much contempt. It's a four-verse psalm and he uses the word much three times. The sense is, and as it has it in in the ESV, is that we've had more than enough. This is the point of being full of ridicule and contempt. I can take no more. The quantity and the duration of this treatment has the psalmist quite literally at the end of his tether. Uh, Alec Mottier, a commentator, calls this psalm praying at the end of your tether. That's where the psalmist is at. And we're not told the exact circumstance or reason why he's being treated this way, why the arrogant and the proud have turned to him in ridicule and contempt. It may be like Nehemiah in our reading earlier, that he is suffering ridicule and contempt precisely because... He's God's man and he's doing God's work. Uh, Maybe that's where you experience ridicule and contempt. Maybe it's for your beliefs as a Christian. Maybe that's the the arena in which you feel ridiculed, right? Uh, You're made a laughing stock because you believe in a God who made all things. Or you're viewed as distasteful and unpleasant because you hold that there is a God who sets the parameters on sex and marriage. Uh, Maybe you don't feel that at a personal level, but maybe you feel that when you switch on your TV. As a whole church, maybe we feel like the voice of satire is pretty sharp against us. We're treated with ridicule and contempt. Uh, Maybe like Nehemiah, it was as you go about God's work. uh, For Nehemiah, as he began rebuilding the walls, he was mocked for doing the Lord's work, wasn't he, in our reading? A fox could stand on that and it would crumble. When he was going out about the work the Lord had told him to do, to rebuild the walls of his city. Uh, Maybe your situation is like that. As you go about the Christian lifestyle, people just laugh at it. They think it's ridiculous. Maybe you're looked down on for living simply. As other people make lots of money and, uh, and enjoy lots of money, 
you're laughed at for the fact that you make lots of money and give away lots of money. It doesn't show in how you dress. Maybe you're laughed at for missing out on some sort of excellent pleasure because of a dated morality that's just laughable these days. Maybe, though, you might experience contempt and ridicule for nothing to do with the Christian faith, for no obvious tie. Maybe you're just bullied at school because of how you look, because of your sporting abilities, because of your unconventional hobbies. And maybe for you this happens in the workplace. You're overlooked by a boss who's just contemptuous and you don't know why. Maybe you're not invited to certain parties, left out of certain conversations in the canteen or by the water cooler. Maybe you're looked down on for wearing the same dress to four different weddings in the same summer by those who've got money to burn. Maybe you feel it as you show up to the university reunion and you pull up in your seven-year-old middleman's Mondeo and other people pull up in stuff that's just a bit more impressive and the look down the nose lands on you. The jibes and the jokes come pretty quickly and it'll be the same five years later when you go back for anniversary 25. Maybe for you it's a lot more personal and intimate. Maybe the way you experience contempt is the harsh remark that comes from the same in-law every family reunion, time after time after time. Maybe it's rejection. You're passed up on by a loved one. As you extend your hand to them in kindness, it's pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. Rejection. The situations in which we've experienced this are pretty varied, right? And they've got various severity for me that I couldn't use my experiences of contempt as a sermon illustration because they're not at all straightforward and they're deeply personal. But whatever the reason you experience contempt or ridicule and to whatever extent you experience it, ongoing contempt and ridicule is devastating. Do you see that in the psalm? He's broken. Ask someone who's gone through years of bullying Ask someone who's gone through decades of being overlooked for a promotion. Maybe someone who's just gone through months of ridicule or weeks of rejection from a spouse. That's where the psalmist is at. It's this moment just before the head dips below the waterline. It's just before drowning, full to breaking point. And maybe you're there tonight. Or maybe you've been there. And it's completely different from Buckaroo, isn't it? You played the game Buckaroo? where you load on these burdens and you load them on and load them on and load them on until it just kicks off. Spring, it's all better. Buckaroos bounce back. It's not like this in the psalm. It gets piled on and piled on and piled on and he just breaks. This is crushing. And the question the psalm would have us look, ask isn't what are you going to say to those who mock you? What are you going to do about it? The question the psalm makes us ask is where are you going to look? Where are your eyes going to go as you suffer contempt and ridicule? Do you, do you see the obsession with eyes in the first couple of verses? Let's count them together, just in verses 1 and 2. Every time it says lift or look or eyes, I'm going I'm to count one, okay? I lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven, as the eyes of a slave look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to That's eight times in two verses. Eyes, look, eyes, look, eyes, look. The question is, where are you going to look? Where are you going to put your eyes as these trials come in? 
all about you and on your life. And the psalmist says, look up. Where are you going to look? First point, the psalmist says, look up. We're going to have three L's tonight if you're into alliteration. Um, There's nothing special in alliteration. It just helps me remember it a little bit better. So the first L, the psalmist says, where are you going to look? Look up. Do you see that verse one? I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. That's where the psalmist says to look. That's where the psalm would have us look. But if you're anything like me, your temptation as this happens is to look anywhere else. As you suffer contempt and ridicule, personally, my temptation is to look down, to go bleak, to get depressed, to think there's nothing left in this situation but the grave. That's where my eyes go. And one of the key things I've learned this week is my need to repent. That in the last six years of walking with the Lord Jesus, there's been moments of contempt where my eyes have gone right down and not glanced upwards. And I feel convicted of that. Maybe for you, though, you're more tempted to look in. Maybe you don't have a downward glance, but you have an inward glance. So you acknowledge in contempt and ridicule, the problem's me and the solution is me. I look in. So maybe this happens as you're bullied for your weight, you look inward to take control of the ridicule. You're going to end it through something you do in you. And maybe that means you pursue control through an aggressive diet or through a certain dress sense. Maybe you're more tempted to look outwards, right? Maybe you actually look to the proud and the arrogant and you think, oh, I'll win them over. I'll win them over. I'll turn them round. I'll find mercy with them. Maybe you just want them to stop looking at you with scorn so you start looking like them. Maybe it's easier to just be like the proud and the arrogant and avoid all contempt and all ridicule. That may be a great number of us tonight. Maybe you're tempted just to look out for distractions, right? It's a world full of distractions. And as you experience contempt and ridicule, you just, you can't face it anymore. You need to look somewhere else. And so the TV gets turned on, Facebook gets opened, Xbox gets switched on. Distraction, 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 distraction. And the issue is that there's no solution to be found as we look in this playing field, right? If we think about it, if we're only looking within the parameters of this earth for a solution to the problems of this earth, we're stuck. Let's say I'm looking out to the desperate situation for a solution to the desperate situation. Doesn't make sense, does it? Or maybe if I'm looking into my broken heart for a solution to my broken heart. Doesn't work that way, does it? There's no solution found in that. And that's why the psalmist says this amazing phrase. I lift up my eyes to you, and notice the second line of that, to you whose throne is in heaven. He wants to put his eyes somewhere very different from the parameters of trouble and trial. And as he looks up to this, this phrase just unpacks two things beautifully for us. Firstly, he looks up to an individual, right? Do you see that? To you whose throne is in heaven. And he is looking to the one who has the ability and the authority to change the situation, right? If you're full to bursting and you're pleading for mercy, there is one who is able and has authority to act in mercy. But there's a second thing going on with this throne in heaven image, right? It's a look to a place that's very different from our own world, isn't it? So yes, it's a look from our inability to the able one, But also it's a look from a place of pain and struggling and conflict 
to a place of utter contrast, the throne room of heaven, where peace reigns, where there is justice, where there is love. So in the face of trials that we can't change, things that are way out of our own hands, we can look up, and as we look up, we take our powerlessness and pain to a place where God is king and earthly ridicule is banished. This is not the circumstance of heaven, right? Ridicule and contempt doesn't go on there. But we also look to the God on the throne of heaven who hasn't lost and we remind ourselves that him and his heaven is real. This is real. If you're a Christian suffering contempt and ridicule, this is real and it waits for you. Look up. So that's the first L, look up. That's the where of our looking. But now the psalmist gets concerned about the how of our looking. How are we going to do it? What's it going to be like? And he starts to add this depth to this understanding of authority and ability about the king on his throne. He peels back what we should look like. So firstly, we're called to look up. And then secondly, we're called to look like a slave. That's what our looking's to be like. Do you see that in verse 2? Let's read verse 2 again together. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look. Now at first, that sounds degrading and offensive. But that's not what it's communicating. This isn't... uh, undermining of what we looked at this morning we're still sons we're still heirs it's not cutting into that what it's doing is trying to give us a picture to describe our helplessness and the power of this master that's the picture this isn't saying you are slaves it's not it's not degrading but it's a picture to teach us the kind of posture we should have as we look to God amidst contempt and ridicule it's not only saying look there's one greater You're a slave, he's a master. But it's also talking about God's guardianship. A slave has a a master has a responsibility for their slaves, has a care for their slaves, is able to act and intercede for powerless slaves. That's the picture. And remember, this is a prayer for mercy, right? This isn't a smug prayer. This is a prayer for something we don't deserve and that we can't achieve ourselves. So the image of a slave and a master shouldn't be as shocking to us as that. We're looking for an act of grace to one who's able to show it. That's the posture for our praying. Now, did you see the repetition of this eyes to the hand? Did you see that twice as eyes to a hand? If we think about that, your eyes, what can they do? The eyes, they're, they're an organ of desire, right? They can want stuff, they can look to it, but you can't do anything with your eyes, really. You can look to stuff. But what can you, if I said chop an onion with your eyes? Like you can't do it. Eyes are an organ of desire, not an organ of action. But eyes are able to look for mercy to something else. And that's to a hand. And a hand is kind of this organ of action and of intervention. And the eyes were of a slave, powerless eyes. But the hand is of a master who's powerful and can act. So in that sense, it's not just a humble posture, right? But it's a hopeful posture. Me who can do nothing with my useless eyes looks to you and to your powerful hand, which can do much. As we suffer contempt and ridicule, this is a reminder that our God is sovereign, right? God reigns and is in control of the intimate and of the infinite. That's the God we're looking to 
a God who can act. He's able to change the circumstances of our lives. And he has the authority to run the show. And this really recognizes both of those, doesn't it? You have the authority, master. You have the ability hand. Do you see that? And in case you were ever tempted to look as instead as a master to a slave, there's that repetition. Do you see how it goes male plural slaves to single fem- female maid? That's not just poetic. There's a point to that. And the point is, this is how all must look. There's not an alternative, right? There's not like, oh, here's the other way you could look to God. This is the way to look. He's the one with the authority and the ability. You're not. And I think sometimes we want to usurp God in how we pray. We say, oh, I recognize your power. You can change this. But mine is the authority. I know best. And so, Lord, with your power, this is what you should do. I'm going to direct you. And that's really tempting when we suffer trials, right? We're desperate. We're struggling. We're full to breaking. But the psalm says, no, no. Look up, but look like a slave. Eyes to hand. That's the where, that's the how, and now we move forward to the who. The psalm wants to explain to us who exactly it is we're looking to. Do you see that at the end of verse 2? So our eyes look to the Lord, caps lock, our God, till he shows us mercy. And then again in verse 3, have mercy on us. Who's it addressed to? O Lord, caps lock, have mercy on us. Now that caps lock of the Lord we should look to isn't an accident, right? This isn't just the printers at NIV make a terrible hash of the Bible. This is the English uh, Bible communication of the special name of God, Yahweh. Uh, We don't use that word, it's not in our vocab, so instead that name is translated into this caps lock Lord and it's used very deliberately. I haven't found a place in the Old Testament where the caps lock Lord isn't used on purpose. It's always remembering something deliberate and it really relates to what's being prayed for. In case you're not clear on what's being prayed for, the psalmist says it three times. Verse 2, mercy. Verse 3, mercy. Verse 3, mercy. It's clear what he's asking for. And because that's what he's asking for, he references God as Lord. Caps lock, L-O-R-D. And you see how it's become a together glance. Right? Verse 1 begins, I. Now at the end of verse 2, so our eyes. Look to our God till he shows us it's become a community affair as they look together to the God who is theirs so why caps lock L-O-R-D this is the God of the people of Israel he's their God specifically their covenant God who has shown them in his actions and declared to them and given them revelation of who he is and that person is merciful It uses the name Lord, capital L-O-R-D, because this is the God of mercy. This is the Lord who firstly has shown mercy, which is a great reason to look to someone, isn't it? If you're looking for mercy, you don't go to someone who's never shown you anything but contempt. You go to the person who you know shows mercy. You've already experienced their mercy, and that's exactly why it's referenced here. As the psalmist says, so we look to the Lord our God, He's remembering this is the Lord who has shown us mercy. Now for the first singers of this psalm, that's the mercy that's been shown in God choosing them in Abraham to be his people, which was nothing to do with merit and all to do with mercy. They were the least of all people and he chose them to be his in his mercy. And it's to do with the fact that he saved them from slavery in Egypt. 
through Moses. Again, all mercy, no merit. This wasn't because they were special. It wasn't because they earned it. It's because of God's great mercy, because of who he is. So they are looking to the God who's already shown them mercy. He's shown them much else. We could do a whole scan of the Old Testament up to this point, and we'd see mercy after mercy after mercy. And so they already know he's merciful. Lord of mercy, show mercy. That's the prayer. And if we think about that for us, how much more intense is that? As we suffer ridicule and contempt, who's the one who's shown us mercy? How much confidence can we have to ask him for mercy, knowing the mercy he's shown? And how much comfort is it, even if no other mercy is shown, to know the mercy of the past? That's amazing, isn't it? To look back upon that. So for us, he's shown us mercy in choosing us, not in Abraham, but in Jesus. All mercy, no merit. We were nothing. And again, he saved us, not from slavery, but from our sin and rebellion and from our death, through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All mercy, no merit. It's absolutely undeserved and it's absolutely vast. This is who we're looking to as we plead for mercy in the trials of our lives. And we're looking to a Jesus who actually became an object of ridicule and contempt. This is our Lord. This is how he showed us mercy. By being the object of ridicule and contempt. Scoffed at, scorned, ill-treated, suffered, died. All for the sake of our salvation ridiculed. Why? For our redemption. That's the Lord of mercy we're looking to. That's great mercy, isn't it? And as we're looking up, even knowing and recalling the mercy he's shown is some comfort, isn't it? Recalling the gospel is comfort to the soul in trial, let alone the mercy he's showing. And as we're going to see, he is going to show. So he's shown mercy. Secondly, he is showing mercy right now. In the psalm, and for us as we pray this psalm in a minute, he is showing us mercy currently. He's not a God of a single moment of mercy, right? He's not just like, oh, I'm going to be merciful on this day for this occasion from that point. No, I'm done with the mercy thing. No, he's a God of constant mercy because it's in his character. God continues to be merciful. Think about the mercy of this moment, right? The psalmist is praying for mercy And as he does it, think about the mercy that's happening. One, God is listening. That's mercy. Does the psalmist deserve the ear of the Lord God in and of himself? No, he doesn't. Does he have right to just look up to the throne of heaven? No, he doesn't. God gives him a place to look to. That is mercy. And he invites his gaze. And he gives him eyes to see. And he gives him strength to lift his eyes. That's so much mercy. And it's invited. Uh, Maybe that's God's grace and God's mercy to you tonight. Just to give you a fresh glance of where to look to. Maybe his mercy to you tonight is just enough strength to keep your chin above water and look to him. Maybe that's his mercy to you tonight. A vision of him on his throne. It's amazing to think that we're looking to one who is able to empathize with us, right? As we suffer... We're looking to one who suffered for us. As we're treated with contempt, we're looking to one who was made contemptuous for us. That's incredible. That's some mercy that we have in Christ. And that gives us some confidence in this approach to him, doesn't it? Think about how this has changed, right? So the psalmist is able to look up. That's incredible mercy. You can look up. That's incredible mercy. But think about how through, how through Jesus, our access to that same throne room 
is enhanced. Think about how intensified that is, how great it is for us as we get treated for prolonged periods as worthless to remember that we've been made worthy to approach the throne of grace. If someone's making you feel worthless at this stage in your life, you're being overlooked, you're being bullied, you've been dumped, you've been treated with ridicule and contempt. Through Jesus Christ, you're not worthless. You're declared a son of his and you're made worthy to come before his throne of grace. Maybe you're being treated as beneath consideration. The gospel is that Jesus considered us and came for us. That's remarkable. So don't let the final word on you be contempted and ridiculed and overlooked. That is not God's view of you. That is not what he's done. And as we can see in Hebrews verse Hebrews 4 verse 16, I'll just read it to us. This incredible intensification of this idea. It says, not just look up, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's a throne room we're invited to go to through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's incredible. As we look to this Lord, we can see he has shown mercy, right? Is showing mercy, we can look to him. And the prayer is, till he shows mercy. Has, is, and now till he shows us mercy. And as long as that happens, we keep praying verse 3. Have mercy, O Lord, have mercy on us. It's an incredibly simple prayer, isn't it? God's not after your rhetoric. None of us are that good with words. We're not trying to win him over by putting this incredible prayer before him. It is okay if the only words you can muster in your time of trial is please have mercy, O Lord. That's an acceptable prayer. It's an invited prayer. It's a biblical prayer. And we should have no shame in praying that and praying that for others. That's an incredible thing. And the psalmist is resolved. Did you see that? Till he shows his mercy. Do you see the submission in there as well, right? The resolve, till, I'm going to look until this happens. But the submission, till he shows his mercy, is his to show, and it's on his timeline. The psalmist doesn't give us a straightforward answer. If you came tonight to just hear, here's God's going to show mercy, it's going to be next Wednesday, 2.30, your contemptuous boss is just going to drop down dead. That's not, I'm not able to promise that tonight. And as we pray, Lord have mercy, that's not necessarily what it's going to be. We don't get a timeline of when that mercy is going to come. We don't know exactly what that mercy is going to look like. Uh, Maybe for you the mercy is, as I said, just enough to keep going one more day. Just a fresh glance of glory to keep going for one more day. Maybe his mercy is that the circumstance is going to radically change soon. Maybe the boss is going to drop down dead. Maybe the school bully is going to get moved to a different location. Maybe it might not be so soon. Maybe you've got another six months of looking. Maybe you've got another six years of looking. Maybe that relief and that comfort, the mercy of God that the psalmist will look to till he shows it, is only going to come in you going to be in glory. Maybe this till he shows mercy Glance is a glance that lasts till glory. But all the while, here's what's true. Even if that's the moment we've got to wait for, right? Even as we suffer ridicule and contempt, here's the thing. The Lord has shown mercy. Remember it. 
That's the gospel, isn't it? He showed us mercy. He is showing us mercy, and that's very real. You are able to approach the throne of grace tonight. That's God's mercy to you. You don't deserve it, but he's given it to you in Christ. He is sovereign. That is real. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is robust in your trial. He is empathetic as one who suffered. He is with you. His presence is real. And the comfort and company of being in God's community is real. We don't need to overlook that. This is real, that we've come together, that people can sing this for you when you're too weak to sing it yourself. That's remarkable mercy. Here's the thing, his certain mercy is real as well. Arrogance and pride will have their end. Contempt and ridicule will not always be ours, right? That heaven that we look up to is where we're going. It will come to an end. Mercy is coming. And there's more truth for us next week in Psalm 124. And there's more truth for us in God's word as we wrestle and apply God's word to this situation. But here's what we can do tonight. We can look up together like slaves from weak eyes to a powerful master's hand. And we look to a Lord who has shown us mercy in the Lord Jesus, who is showing us mercy through the Lord Jesus until he shows mercy as an act through the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.